32-year-old London-based Ella Drake is what some would term a quiet achiever in the world of fashion and design. Once an AUT graduate of graphic design and advertising, Ella dabbled in the modeling industry at age 16, shooting with the likes of renowned ex-stylist and now photographer Karen Indebitson Waller. Ella caught the fashion bug, although never took it too seriously. She took a modeling gig in Tokyo and then skipped to Milan, and from there, the fashion gods laid out their plan for Ella. About to hop on a plane back to Auckland, luxury giant Gucci swooped in and offered Ella a year-long contract as an in-house model, which quickly grew in both scope and time frame. A four-year stint in Europe followed, where Drake continued to grow her role with Gucci, as well as landing jobs with Issey Miyake and Roberto Cavalli. But as she absorbed the world of fashion, the collections, timelines, events, retailers, buying teams, merchandising, and more, it was the world of accessories that captured her imagination. She segued into studying gemology in Florence before working in Sydney and London across a portfolio of jewellery brands. But it was in 2017 that Ella took the leap to start her own jewellery brand, Monarch, which continues to flourish and for which Ella has developed a significant voice in the world of sustainable and ethical design and manufacture. It's my pleasure to welcome to Fashion and Focus, all the way from sunny London, Ella Drake. Hi, Ella. Hi, Murray. It's certainly not sunny today, but <laughs> hey, <I'm totally laughs> as you'd yeah, exactly. It's a bit grey. The sun's gone away for a minute. <laughs> hey, well, thanks for putting this, the time aside. I know it's early morning over there, um, and it's late April here in the dark of night in New Zealand. And um, what an amazing time for us to be catching up. Um, you are uh, now three years into your business, and I bet you wouldn't have imagined um, hitting this kind of road bump. But here we no, are. No, not quite. Not quite. Yeah. Hey, so Ella, I wanted to give everyone a real um, sense of where you began. And I would, I'm would i wondering if you can take us right back to the beginning. What first captured your imagination about fashion and then led you to pursue a career in modelling? Um, oh, I, I don't think I'd really ever planned to model. Um, I was more focused on my studies, which I had always wanted to pursue something in design. So I suppose design and fashion overlap in so many different areas. Um, so yeah, I was focused on my studies and modeling continued to present opportunities throughout um, my time at the end of high school and university. So upon entering what would have been my third year at university, um, I decided to run with modeling and I suppose that decision carried me through the next five to six years of my life. Mm. And what were yeah. some of the things that were happening around New Zealand at that time? Can you remember some of the brands that were kind of big at the moment or anything that you were lusting after or designers that were just coming onto the scene? Um, definitely prominent in the magazine or publication scene was Pavement. I did several of my first editorials with Pavement magazine and Karen um, and Debits and Waller. Um, and I think being the age that I was, kind of 16, 17, there were the younger magazines like Dolly or Girlfriend um, that were around. But I had always looked um, to the overseas scene as well. Um, so although New Zealand was on my doorstep and had some amazing stuff going on, I was definitely personally um, interested in investing into, into what was going on overseas. Mm. And it's interesting you touched on pavement. I mean, we've done 
13 of these podcasts so far, you're number 14, and no one's mentioned po- uh, pavement so far, which really? is not a bad, yeah, it's not a bad thing, but it just shows you that I suppose the, the, um, the here and now is so all-consuming that um, I often find myself feeling a little bit like an old man when I start to talk to my staff and go, do you remember Pavement Magazine? And they all shake their head and look at me like I'm crazy. But I mean, I, I mean, think I was so young when pavement was around and the media landscapes shifted enormously, even more. And I, I suppose the last month um, it's changed so much again. But yeah, mm. oh gosh, does that make me really old? <laughs> <laughs> no, it just makes it just makes you one of the few people that are still operating business these days that kind of understood a little bit more about where things started off. I think <laughs> nice way to got, put it. We've still got such an amazing independent publishing scene in New Zealand. And even though the likes of Bauer Media have closed and taken some magazines with them, which I'm pretty confident we'll see some of them come back. But, I you know, agree. We're still blessed with a lot of independence like Black Magazine, which is run by Rachel Churchwood and her partner Grant Fell, who unfortunately passed away a few years ago. But I mean, Rachel and Grant both came through the pavement school, you know, and then there was no magazine that came out after that with Melinda yeah. Williams and Delaney Tabron and Fraser McGregor and those guys that had worked at pavement, but wanted to do something on their own. So all those things have come and gone, you know, but they keep, um, there's each one of them is evolving. Yeah. It's a little brick to the, the history of the industry, which of course you're a a big part of. So Ella, after your, um, experience, I suppose was evolving in New Zealand, you, you took a trip to Tokyo and Milan, um, to sort of further your modeling career. And that's undoubtedly a, a pretty pivotal point in not only your modeling career, but obviously in the bigger scope of things in your life in general. Tell us about those years you initially spent with Gucci in Milan. Um, So Milan was meant to be a four to six week trip um, over my summer vacation from university. Um, And at about the four week point in my stay in Milan, I was put on contract by Gucci. um, So that forced me to make a couple of decisions. And it wasn't a decision I made lightly as it meant that I I couldn't complete that fourth year of my degree in graphic design and advertising. Um, So at that time, Frida Giannini was Gucci's creative director uh, and I've been working with her for about three to four weeks. I started out as a fit model alongside Tia Woods, who's another Kiwi model. I think she's back in Auckland now, gorgeous Tia. Um, And it really evolved from there. And the whole entire time I was in Europe, I kept an apartment in Milan, which acted as my base, Um, a teeny tiny little place that I was never really at um, because I worked between Florence, Rome and Milan where Gucci have most of their hubs. So they have these big beautiful uh, headquarters, the original one being in Florence, uh, the second largest being in Rome. And then they of course have their headquarters in Milan that serves, uh, I suppose is their hub when fashion week is going on. Um, Mm, When fashion week was going on. Yeah, yeah, not at the moment. (laughs) Who knows what will come in September. but yeah, they have like a lot of property across the country and most of the coming four years was spent between those locations. There were always trips to Paris or New York or depending on where I needed to be for the job or alternative jobs outside of Gucci. Mm. Um, 
but yeah, keeping that apartment in Milan. So I had a base there and basically spent heaps of time on trains, going between locations, mm-hmm. uh, on planes and in cabs, which always was a huge benefit. I saw it as a benefit because it meant I could continue to study my way through those years as well. Yeah. And what an incredible opportunity for someone uh, I don't want to say from little old New Zealand because of, you know, it's, yeah, we're down the bottom of the world, but it's an incredible opportunity no matter where you come from. And, and such, um, such a testament, I suppose, to your work and your ethic back then that you were only there for a few weeks before you got offered that incredible opportunity to be there for at least a year, which then of course flourished into four. Um, Ella, as an in-house model, um, Tell us about just for people who are maybe not as familiar with that role within the fashion industry. I mean, it, it is a pretty important role, especially if you're spending a lot of time with the design team, fitting clothes and, you know, that, that you kind of become a part of a pretty integral part of those design conversations. Tell us about some of those experiences and, and how you fitted in with the team. And, and I know you said that um, Alessandra Michelle, who was there as an assistant is obviously now the creative director and, and you were, working with people like him way back then. What was that like? Um, so, yeah, as I said, I started out as a fit model um, and that you're part of a process where the design team is conceptual, conceptualising a collection, um, which often meant if you take it right back to the beginning of the process, they're hauling in all of these historical vintage garments from museums Paris hosts a huge museum of vintage collections. So they call all of this in, they're getting inspiration from everywhere and it's a huge mess. And slowly they begin to filter and um, you know pick out pieces that are relevant to their vision. So as a fit model at the beginning, it meant I had to try on you know, hundreds and hundreds of vintage and historical designs that would be smelly. Mm. And, you know, you're looking at the day ahead and you've got 250 pieces to try on, which get photographed and uh, the team will be writing down notes on what they like or don't like. Um, and then from there, um, it goes through a development stage and it's refined and it really is like a four to six month process of refining that vision and theme for the next show and the next collection. Mm. Um, From there as from a fit model, I began um, shooting their resort collections and e-commerce, which was quite a new thing. Um, So back in 2010, e-commerce wasn't, what it is today and what we know it to be today and how we use it it was quite a novelty and it felt like something that was fun and really only a handful of big brands were leading the way with a strong online presence so as a model shooting e-com it was a new division almost as a model um and I was also, within the few years I was there, put on exclusive to walk in some of Gucci's autumn winter shows, which once you're on exclusive for one brand, I suppose it opens up uh, other doors that I was able to explore with other brands. Mm. Um, yeah, so it kind of developed step by step. Um, it went from starting as a fit model and building that up and doing, I suppose, some larger, more respected jobs. Mm. And I remember around that time, your you know your name was hot on the lips of a lot of people in the New Zealand fashion industry because you were achieving at such an incredibly high level with a brand like Gucci. And 
I remember, I'm sure I was looking at your image on the 6pm news and then, you know, there was um, probably not so many blogs, but more, you know, fashion publications that were, you know, sharing that news. Did you feel like that was a world that you were comfortable in or did it feel a bit weird having come from studying graphic design and advertising and then kind of getting thrust into this world and then all of a sudden you were pretty close to the top? Was that, was that, did you feel like a fish out of water or did you feel like it was something that you were Um, loving and enjoying and felt natural to be there? I don't think that was my thought process. I think once you're on ground working with somebody like Gucci, there's so much to do. And one of the things that I appreciated most about that team is it felt like a big family. We were spending 10 to 12 hours a day together as a group and you you have your head down, your tail up, you're working away and you don't really have that perception of the outside Mm. world. I remember my agent at the time, she called me, um, lovely Andy from 62, and she's like, how are you feeling? Are you so excited? This is is so great. You know, we're so proud of you. And I was like, I had no concept of Mm. what that meant outside of the world I was living because it Mm. was just all hands on deck. Um, Mm. And that was my life at the time. I didn't think about the hype. I didn't think of anything other than, you know, getting through the task at hand, which Mm. I think is probably what helped me because I was solely focused on that and being present and not giving too much of a damn of how it was going to be perceived. Yeah. And it also speaks to your professionalism too. You know, you weren't there having followed the, you know, the history of Gucci for years and years and it was your lifelong dream to be there. You were part of the furniture by that stage and they trusted you. And like you said, you were working within what felt like a little bit of a family and trying to get this, this business moving. And that's an incredible uh, honor, I suppose, to be within a brand with such history and then to be, for you just to be thinking, well, I'm just a part of the team here. We've got to make this happen. We've got deadlines. You know, we're, we're assessing things from archives and museums and it's just incredible. And, and also the, the layers and layers and layers of people that are involved in those processes continues to blow my mind. You know, I've been in this industry for 18 years and you still hear about roles and, and, and people that are involved in those processes that right down to fit models and seamstresses and, and people that have to go and get lunch and set the room up and light the models and all that kind of thing. You know, every single piece of that journey is so important because it's, it's driving an enormous business. Yeah, and I think the seamstresses, like you've mentioned, the seamstresses and the people who are doing the fit out for the shows, all of those people were really appreciated and they definitely made up a big part of my life, that's for sure. But um, also Alessandro Michele, who is now the creative director, he didn't come out of nowhere. He sat side by side with Frida for the whole time she was CD. Um, So I think that just goes back to Gucci having this team and this family that have been part of their existence for the longest time. It's not like they're chopping and changing ideas. It's everybody plays their role and everybody plays such an important part in actualizing that vision or, you know, what we see on the other side of it. Mm. And speaking of all those different moving parts, Ella, you, you talk about finally sort of having accessories really capture your attention and not only the aesthetics of them, but the sentimentality and the longevity of jewellery. And especially, you know, looking at it from Gucci's perspective, but then obviously your mind started to think about in general that that 
part of fashion and that part of design and that those objects of desire and and what jewelry really means in the world tell us about that process that must have started to happen where you went from model and to create a now but talk us through what started happening in your brain when you started to fall in love with accessories and jewelry and started to think maybe that could be another chapter for you so many different parts um, contributed to that decision. Um, I think going back uh, to Gucci again, there were a couple of people there. So Ale, Alessandra McKelly, um, and Sara Noza, who's the lead jewellery designer at Gucci. I think, you know, sitting on the sideline when we had five to ten minutes to pause, I always admired watching them the most because it was a slower process. Um, although the fashion of the, sorry, the lead creative direction of the collection changed uh, season to season for fashion. Jewellery kind of remained a constant within that, what they would be wearing on their personal bodies, their jewellery remained there every season. So I identified that as being something that resonated more with me, that timelessness. Um, and from there, you know, I sat on it and going back to having quite a lot of time as I was traveling, I decided I wanted to take some papers and extend on my studies in, in the jewelry industry. So I began juggling modeling commitments and jewelry studies and the Gemological Institute of America was based in Florence. Um, so that's a really respected jewelry university coming from America and they have uh, campuses dotted around the world. So my closest one was in Florence, Italy, uh, which is sadly no longer, but a beautiful university campus that enabled me to do my work um, in Italy and jump on a train and attend courses uh, to study gemology and CAD CAM, so computer animated design and modeling. Mm. Um, and then it kind of took shape from there. So I completed those studies and a lot of other papers in production and manufacturing uh, for design, which then my life took a slightly different path and I moved to Sydney to pursue this next career move in jewellery. Um, and then by 2013, I had stepped away from modelling entirely and worked hard to set myself up with a future career in the jewellery industry. Mm. And that shift back from Europe, coming back down to Sydney, did you feel like that was maybe a sort of a homecoming of sorts and were you on your way back to New Zealand or did you ever, did you always feel like you might head back up to Europe and, and that's where you could pursue your career? I, I definitely did. In my heart of hearts, I felt like Europe had become home at that point. Um, but it's hard. I mean, I'm so split. I'm so invested in my family and my good friends in New Zealand and Australia. Um, but I am really focused on my career as well. So I'm always torn, torn by that decision. And I, I think I've come to the conclusion that I don't have to decide. I can make it work between both places. But yeah, upon landing in Sydney, I had thought about living in Auckland, um, my partner at the time was Australian, so it felt like more of a natural choice for us to place ourselves in Sydney. Um, and also I had the opportunity to work for an Australian or an international jewellery production company. So that kind of made the decision for me to mm. base myself in Sydney for the next few years. Mm. So then, of course, you 
you know, years gone by, you all of a sudden, well, probably not all of a sudden, actually, you create this idea in your mind to start what is now Monarch, um, which is an incredible jewellery brand in its own right. And obviously, you've had all of this uh, experience and and a, a short but probably very rich history that offered itself to create this new thing. And, you know, coming back to, I mean, 2017, obviously, we're 10 years past the GFC. And what I remember distinctly after that time was that no one started anything new because it was just too risky and no one wanted to do anything. But you were, you were coming into a time that was really rich with new ideas, not in, only in New Zealand, but all the way around the world. And obviously, even as you talked about before with online shopping and e-commerce, the world has just become full of so many new ideas and so many new brands and everyone wants to start their own fashion label every two seconds. What made you feel confident that you had an idea that could spark some joy with people and also fulfill what you wanted to do from a design and a business perspective? Um, so I had sat on, I worked for the Australian-owned international jewellery production company from 2012 to 2017. Um, and I think over those five years, I really picked out and observed uh, different parts of an international portfolio that was 20 jewellery accounts. So I was in a lucky position to sit there going, hey, I really love what that brand's doing. I don't know why that brand isn't considering this. And I had an mm. overview of 20 really great accounts. And from that, I kind of formed my own idea of what I liked and I didn't like and what I thought was going to serve the market best in the coming years, decades. So that informed a lot of the decisions for how I wanted to set up Monarch. Um, and I did recognize that there was a space in the market for my own brand with a focus on having a timeless product offering, a bespoke service, and most importantly, a core focus on sustainability, mm. um, which, yeah, I think has really become a foundational pillar today. So I think sustainable materials and ethical practices are not features that I consider to be marketing or advertising advantages for brands anymore. Um, I've always seen it as a key operational need for modern day brands. Um, and really it was about how I could build a business model that protects everyone involved, everyone involved humans and the environment. Um, so making products sustainable and ethical was a foundational pillar um, that I saw needed to be part of Monarch. Mm. And yeah, I mean, we've just gone through Fashion Revolution Week for 2020, and it's it's great to see that that is is a movement and an organisation uh, which has gathered so much steam in the past few years. It's uh, it's absolutely diabolical that it that it had to come from such a tragedy as as mm. happened in, in Bangladesh in the Rana Plaza disaster. But I completely agree with you that customers and, and the industry, it's no longer uh, acceptable for something to be sustainable for a season or for it to be uh, a limited edition collection, which is sustainable or ethically produced. Or and just I, a tiny capsule collection on the side of part of a much, much larger offering. Exactly. And I think, yeah. I hope really that customers will uh, not really almost not not pay it attention but i hope that they 
look at brands in, in the not too distant future and expect them to be sustainable, expect them to be ethical, expect them to be to hold a certain level of transparency and be able to access information about where things are made and how and where materials are sourced and that kind of thing. I don't think that can be a selling point anymore. It just has to be. No, and I think there's been a massive spike of inquiries for Monarch over the last four weeks. I mean, before that, I think Monarch's customer base are uh, incredibly knowledgeable anyway um, and up with the play and aware and can decipher for themselves what they think the sustainability and ethical practices are. But in the last four weeks, the inquiries have been coming in thick and fast, and I think that's a direct reflection of people being sat at home and have more time on their hands to consider what is coming into my world. If I'm forced to make a decision because I can't have a plethora of things coming into my home now or, you know, I'm not in a position where I can afford all of my regular convenience products, what am I going to choose and why? Um, mm. I think there's a couple of turns like it's a victory vote. I'm going to choose this company because I, I actually believe in what they're doing now and their key practices resonate more with me. So I think, yeah, sustainability and ethics has spiked again in the last um, mm. couple of months as we're navigating our way through this um, mm. this period of COVID. Yeah, it's something that I've heard also from other local New Zealand-based fashion brands too. They've had an enormous amount of people asking where things are made, how many items that they make of any one unit, um, how how fast they can ship, what their practices are, how big their teams are. I, I think it's partly that people have had more time on their hands, but also I think with this, with such a fast-moving uber, uber globalization of fashion, I think people are actually, they've got the time and they've got, like you said, the opportunity to slow down and go, hang on, if I'm going to keep consuming like this, A, do I need to? And B, what's it costing me? And C, what's it costing the planet? And can I be better? And that's a, that's a great conversation for anyone to be having right now. Yeah, and I think through, you know, we're all pretty time poor in this day and age. And I think a big thing for me is willful ignorance when it feels too hard to sit there and really think about what you're buying or what you're supporting. Um, willful ignorance comes into play um you know there are so many savvy well-informed customers out there but also there's a lot of willful ignorance when it comes to customers thinking about how was this item made and what's it made from and we're seeing a huge shift in that and that's brilliant um but there's not the onus doesn't fall completely on a brand or a consumer it's definitely a shared responsibility i think Brands need to lead by example and present information on their materials and products and production line and be transparent about supply chains, et cetera. But it also does come to a point where customer behavior should help share the common goal. And mm. I think that's what we're seeing now. And for me, that's the really exciting bit. Mm. Now, Ella, one of the most incredible parts of your business that I've only recently discovered, which I really want you to dive deep into, is the above-ground diamonds that you use throughout your Monarch collections. Um, not only are you using recycled precious metals as the foundation of your pieces, but this uh, idea of an above-ground diamond that's uh, man-made is an exceptionally incredible process um, and you've sent me some notes about it but I wonder if you can kind of 
dive into not only the process, but uh, maybe a little bit more about why you chose them. And then um, also for purists who are saying, well, you know, diamonds always have come out of the ground and they've been in mines, et cetera. And there's myriad ways or myriad reasons why people shouldn't be buying things like that anymore. Um, what was the key reason for you to to choose above ground diamonds as, as a core part of the Monarch business? So from the outset, I wanted to create a jewellery and commitment offering that was more in line with the core values of life and love and marriage. Um, and from my time where I was kind of on the front line procuring and sourcing earth mine diamond stones, I sat with that for six months to a year and decided absolutely not. This is not an industry that I want to be involved with if it's going to last, you know, the rest of my life. That doesn't sit well with me as a person. Um, So in 2018, I turned my back against Earthmine Diamonds. Monarch turned its back and stopped using and working with the stones and that was really a choice to place compassion and responsibility and transparency uh, at the forefront of our principles for the business. Um, So above ground diamonds um, or also termed lab grown diamonds, if we take it right back to the beginning, uh, diamond is carbon. That's the element that it's made up of in pure form. Um, And, Carbon in the earth and above ground, if it's placed in an environment of immense heat and pressure, then the crystalline structure or the crystal lattice grows organically. So it's really taking that element and putting it in an environment and it does its thing. So we're not able to say we want this color or this clarity. Once you put the carbon in that environment, it's an organic process and it grows with its natural inclusions and characters from there. Um, And it's really against going uh, down a route that is either surface mining or underground mining of the earth. Um, we're extracting gemstones near the Earth's surface, um, comes along with environmental toll and underground especially. Um, there are so many different underground mining methods um, that kind of broken down into drilling or tunneling below the ground. Um, but yeah, it, they are very detrimental to the Earth and unless it's managed and there are restorative environmental practices, um, it's not a world that I was going to enter for for the Monarch business. Mm. And there's a really nice piece in your above ground commitment line that, that says, above ground diamonds offer full transparency. They can be tracked from their inception in California to the end c- customer. While mine diamonds generally pass through a dozen owners with an origin impossible to trace, our diamonds are guaranteed from us and not pre-owned. And that sense of transparency and that, trans- of ass- that sense of assure- assuredness, I suppose, within your business must help you sleep well at night for one, but also what an incredible story to share with your customers. And not only those ones who are interested and who are asking where the diamonds are sourced from, and I, I think and hope that we've got past that that. Uh, that concept of blood diamonds that used to be so prolific years ago that, that now so many companies ask for paperwork to make sure that their, their diamonds aren't blood diamonds. But I mean, this in itself is such an amazing process 
what an incredible conversation starter at the very, very least to talk to even the most uh, experienced jewelry, jewelry aficionados about just how these diamonds are created. Has it, has it put you into a bit of a, a clear path against other jewelry brands or is there a groundswell of people starting to use this type of technology? Um, well, I think Earthline Diamonds and Above Ground Diamonds, you're right. It's, there's a lot more clarity and transparency. And I think the process, because you're cutting out all of these middlemen and all of the hands that it's passing through and all of the convoluted chat about certification and which mine it's coming from, which is really hard to guarantee a stone's provenance that's being earth mined anyway. I think you're just cutting out a huge chunk that makes picking a diamond um, so much more difficult. Um, so uh, I think when I started using um, above ground diamonds, I was, the first person in New Zealand to do so. Um, and there are only three jewelers here in the UK that are offering both a combination of above ground and bespoke service. Um, so yes, I have seen a massive swell in customers uh, wanting to use them, um, even more so in the last six months. So it's been a gradual uh, incline from 2018 to now, but yeah, in the last six months, exponential growth. Um, Customers, once they land, you know, to me and us having a meeting, I think they've done an enormous amount of research for themselves. So there's actually no selling at that point once they get to me. They've already made their decision mm. and they've just arrived at the point of, of designing the piece and actualizing what they want to do. Um, yeah, it, it cuts out a lot of faff. Mm. And Ella, I mean, you speak of Monarch and it feels like it's a very boutique business. It feels like it's very hands-on. It's very hands-made. You've got four staff, I think, between London and New Zealand, um, mm -hmm. which by no means is, is a big team. But I, I mean, I know about managing teams of that size and even they come with their own um, quirks and, and issues. <laughs> but what are your plans for the business in the next few years? Do you, do you want to keep it hands-on? Do you want to expand it? And, and how, how would uh, using repurposed materials and above-ground diamonds help you um, either grow or is it, is it better at the moment to stay small and, and understand your customers and understand your product line and keep things in check? Um, so at the moment, we definitely have a capacity and we're hitting that month on month. So I don't think it's so much a, a vision or an objective for growth now. It's That's what's happening. Um, and it's just being able to step up and increase our capacity and you know, make more engagement or wedding bands every month. Um, we don't have a particular model where we bring out X seasonal collections per year. That That's not part of who we are. Um, so we can kind of tailor that a little bit more. If we are all hands on deck and really needing to put a lot of our resources into fulfilling those engagement and wedding orders, then I will pull a collection um, like an autumn, winter or summer spring collection from our calendar and say, hey, we're not going to release a big collection here. We'll release a couple of pieces or we won't, you know, release because it's not a necessity right now. So I think the growth, the growth is organic, although, yes, we do want to grow the brand and have more of a presence in New Zealand and London. I think 
it's definitely organic and the demand's there. So we're just meeting those needs at the moment. Mm. Yeah, and good on you for choosing that route too. I mean, there's a there's a lot to be said for fashion brands slowing down off that that hamster wheel of creating two or four or eight collections a year and taking on different parts of that and going sideways into other product lines. And of course, right now there's a huge push and a request from customers in the industry, I suppose, to just slow things down a little bit. And it feels like your DNA of your brand is already there. Um, it may yeah, even be harder to... for you to, to, to push against creating more things in the future. You, you know, it feels like you're com- quite comfortable with a less is more attitude. Yeah, I mean, I revisited coming into our third year, the original business plan, and it always said, you know, we're against that seasonal release of just releasing a collection because media was calling in your new lines and Mm. calling in for new press releases. That was never our model. Um, We're definitely more timeless and don't feel the need to contribute with more designs for the sake of having more things on e-commerce sites. Mm. So, yeah, I I suppose it it makes it more manageable for us. We're not having to contribute for the sake of more, more, more. Mm. And I suppose being the head of a design company like this, you get to uh, choose which way you go and, and, you know, you can push and pull in different directions and say, let's do a collaboration with this person or let's release a collection then. And recently you've had a couple of collaborations, one of which was with Renee Stewart, Um, who is, of course, uh, Rachel Hunter's daughter, and she's a dancer and based up in London, I think. Uh, We did some work with Renee years ago for Bend On, actually. Um, It was great to meet her back then. And you released a collection with her, uh, a collaboration for Spring Summer 1819. Tell us about that partnership and and what sparked it and a bit more about that that collaboration uh, in general for Monarch. Yeah, um, so I normally have one collection a year that I like to collaborate on with somebody who's interesting and inspiring to me personally and who I think fits well with Monarch's audience. Um, So Renee, it was a a natural partnering. Um, I really admired Renee's style and talent as a dancer and a mutual friend, Ginny Earle, introduced us. So the collaboration flowed organically from there. Um, Renee obviously having ties to New Zealand and the UK, her her father is here, um, and then us both living in London, the logistics were perfect um, and it made perfect sense to me. Um, Renee's career in dance definitely inspired some of the forms and shapes that we explored for the collection um, and also the names of the pieces and we're both quite classic and pragmatic and relatively understated and unfussed with our personal style. Uh, so this was an easy uh, mutual key focus when we designed the pieces. Um, so definitely that they transcend gender and age as well as, you know, befitting to our personal style. Mm. Yeah, it, it definitely, you've hit the nail on the head with Renee. I remember when we met, she did come across, especially f- coming from a family that was so much in the media spotlight and um, and so ubiquitous in, in that name, Stuart, coming from her father, Rod. Um, and she seemed completely the opposite, super polite, extremely eloquent, very articulate and very quiet and just wanted to kind of almost fade into the background. 
So, um, yeah, that sounds like a brilliant collaboration and, and something that seems to fit so nicely within the Monarch DNA. Yeah, and I think also about building community. I don't want to do a collaboration with somebody that might be a good fit for X amount of months. And with Renee, it's a collaboration and a partnership that has extended just the jewellery collection we designed two years ago. For example, she was um, on Monarch doing a meditation and breathwork session the other day. So, I mean, I, I like the idea that if you have a partnership with somebody, they become part of your brand and, you know, offer more than just their name for a collection. So it was very much a wholesome kind of contribution to to the friendship or partnership and extending on what we can offer the Monarch community. Um, Ella, that collaboration with Renee sounds incredible. And I think talking and hearing you uh, speak about honesty and, and true partnerships is great um, and something that I think everyone at the moment is really searching for. Um, and stepping into 2019, you had another collaboration um, with Lolita Maas, and this time uh, it's a Demi-Fine jewellery collection. So talk us through, first of all, what's Demi-Fine, and then tell us about that collaboration and, and how it came together with Lolita Maas. Okay. Um, so Demi-Fine is like semi-fine, so using... Um, materials that are still precious so demi-fine i work with silver and the stones are not normally diamonds so if they're diamond i would consider it fine jewelry so with lolita we haven't used too many stones but we have used things like upcycled recycled agate and jade um which again, just harking back into choosing sustainable materials. Um, we are hand cutting pieces that would have been jade or agate ornaments um, and repurposing them into a stone that we're using for the Lolita collection. Um, so yeah, Demi Find is perhaps just less precious um, than diamond or 18 carat um, fine gold. Um, right. With Lolita, Lolita is based here in London. Um, she's a very talented stylist and content creator. Um, and funnily enough, at the time we had a studio that was in Old Street, East London, and she worked across the road at Farfetch um, and their personal styling team. So it was really fortunate, actually like Renee, who lived just up the road mm. when we started our collaboration, Lolita was directly across the roundabout. Um, so it meant from a practical point that we could meet up at the drop of a hat and kind of go through any developments on the project. Um, and lastly, Ella, I wanted to talk about this new concept that you launched just before we went into lockdown. Um, and unfortunately, it probably didn't get the breathing room that it really needed. But um, the, the story name was Bonded. Um, and uh, for our listeners out there, I want you to talk through what that meant because I know you were back in Auckland to, to launch it and it looked incredible on Instagram and the images that we were seeing. So tell us about that jewellery collection and, and, and the Bonded idea and where that came from. Um, so Bonded by Monarch is a pretty simple uh, idea and it's bracelet chain. Um, so it's one form of jewellery. I wanted to, community is a huge goal and objective 
for this year. It has been in the past, but I wanted to be able to connect with customers one-to-one and for them to be part of the creation process. So Bonded by Monarch is taking fine gold chain, um, 9 carat, 18 carat chain, and welding it, uh, pulse arc welding it directly to the wrist. So it gives me the opportunity and Samir the opportunity to sit one-on-one with the customer and have them go through the experience of creating that particular piece. Um, But the symbolism in it is very simple and I also think very strong. It's a bracelet that we found many people were coming in to uh, celebrate a personal milestone. A lot of our customers that came in for the launch were coming in in pairs or groups of friends and it happened at the end of summer. So I think they wanted to celebrate having a really beautiful summer together. Um, And... While we had the launch, you're right, that was put on pause as the world kind of got turned upside down, but we definitely have a plan to get back into that. So we had planned a nationwide tour of Bonded by Monarch um, heading into different cities and towns where we could meet customers and apply the the permanent bracelet directly to their wrists, which is about a 15-minute process. And then from there, it doesn't have the clasps and um, all of the little components that can be kind of irritating. It's just a fine gold chain wrapped around and because it's gold, there's no maintenance there. Um, So, yeah, that's definitely one of our big calendar events throughout the next few months. Mm. And just looking through your Instagram right now, I'm just scrolling through images of it and uh, even the idea of having something arc welded to your to your wrist while you're sitting there looks a little bit daunting, but it also <laughs> probably reiterates to your customers, you know, not only the speciality and, and like we talked about the longevity um, of jewelry and what that should be and what that should stand for and, and how people should value it and how they should keep it for longer and that kind of thing, but also the craftsmanship and the ideas and the technology that's going into modern day jewelry brands these days. And it's, it seems like a really great concept that's, sparked interest and and love with people for being able to both you know satiate their desire for new things and buy something beautiful but also teach them about the craft and and what goes into these kind of brands so yeah an incredible concept that seems to be able to to uh both light people up but also educate them at the same time yeah it just brings back that personal element and like you say the craftsmanship is it is actually a person sitting there on the other side who's is making it right before your eyes although it's quite a simple jewelry technique of welding or soldering um which is also completely safe by the way Mm. um yeah it, it is it's just adding that personal touch again and driving home that it is a human making your piece or we're right there on the other side which I think can be forgotten through online ordering or picking it up from the shop where you don't have that that direct contact with the designer or the maker Mm. yeah and um I think that that kind of underpins where you seem to have taken Monarch in general and 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 I hope for the rest of us and for you that 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 strain uh, continues through the brand and it's something that we can all continue to to know and love the brand for. Um, so Ella, thank you so much for your time today. It's been really amazing catching up, you know, from hearing about your 
early days studying at AUT in Auckland through to that incredible, <laughs> incredible experience that you must have had with Gucci and modeling through Europe. And then your journey as a jeweler and a young businesswoman in London. Um, congratulations on, on everything that you've achieved and uh, keep promoting New Zealand and um, singing our praises around the world. Uh, it'd be amazing <laughs> to see you back in New Zealand sometime soon. And I hope our listeners can, uh, can jump onto your website, follow you on Instagram and learn a little bit more about the, uh, the Monarch brand and, and who's behind it. So thanks so much for your time, Ella. Thanks, Murray. And yeah, I definitely look forward to getting back to New Zealand when I can travel home again. <laughs> Wonderful. Well, we look forward to it. Have a great day in London and uh, we hope to catch up soon. Thanks, Murray. That was the latest from Fashion and Focus. Thanks for tuning in and being a part of our conversation. Check out more of our episodes on your favourite podcast feed and get in touch with us at fashionandfocus at showroom22.com.